This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. One of the many drums that I've been beating over the course of the last few years in our ministry in South Africa is that of leadership. In fact, the courage and the strength to lead because true leadership, at least as it is biblically defined, is rather conspicuous by its absence today. In fact, some might even conclude that it's on the endangered species list and about to be declared distinct, uh, extinct. Regardless of where we look today, whether it's in the political realm or big business or academia or national security or even the church of Jesus Christ and yes, even in the home, it is very difficult to find true godly biblical leadership. It is hard to find those who have the courage and the strength to do the right thing at the right time. Most of our so-called leaders today could not lead a colony of ravenous ants to a picnic. And what passes for leadership today is really nothing more than appeasement in drag. Far too many are like the cowardly lion in the Wizard of Oz. And all of that backyard courage never seems to make it out the front door. In fact, it can't even make it from the backyard to the back door in or leading to the backyard. If you want real positive examples of leadership, you need look no further than the Word of God. And so it is to God's Word that we look there we find the prophets. Look at the courage of the Old Testament prophets who went against the current of the age, against the spirit of the age. And as a result, and for all their efforts, many of them were paid with martyrdom and death and a life of misery as a result. What about the apostles in the New Testament as they went against the current of their age to establish the church of Jesus Christ in the known Roman Empire at that time? Almost all of them, according to legacy and according to church history, died a martyr's death as a result. And think of all of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yes, even Moses too. None of them had easy sailing as they committed themselves to follow the course that God outlined for them in his word. The challenges were many and various, and yet by, by faith and through the grace of God, they surmounted those challenges. And so as we find our way to Joshua this morning, we find a prime example and a model of one who had the courage to lead during a time of very significant transition in the life of the nation of Israel. And his example is instructive for us some 3,500 years later as we now find ourselves encountering the strong headwinds of globalism and the religion of statism and the so-called reset that goes along with all of that. 
I believe that much of what we're seeing now is simply but a dress rehearsal and a prelude for things that are yet to come. If that's so, we need courage and strength, the kind that we find in the book of Joshua. And while God isn't calling us as the church of Jesus Christ to lead some two million people across the Jordan River into the city of Jericho to establish a nation for God, he is calling us to be strong and he is calling us to be courageous. To be strong and courageous in our marriages, strong and courageous in our families, strong and courageous in our neighborhoods and our place of employ, and yes, in our churches as well. And if we're going to survive, and if we're going to be the salt and the light that we've been called to be during these difficult, uncertain days, we are going to need the same strength and courage that we find here in the book of Joshua. It's in Joshua 1, 1 through 9, that we see three times the Lord commanded Joshua, be strong and courageous. And in verse 7, he says, be strong and be very courageous. What is that strength? What is that courage that we find here? How do we define it biblically? Well, the strength that is spoken of here, we could simply define with one word. It's fortitude. Fortitude fits the context here. He's not speaking about physical strength, though that's important for the battles that are upcoming for Israel, but rather he's speaking about spiritual and mental fortitude and tenacity that is required. A strength of character, a strength of integrity to withstand the onslaught and the attendant um, uh, temptations to compromise to a fallen world that is all around them. That's the strength. What about the courage? It's a very closely related word, but the word for courage here, when it's coupled with strength, speaks about being resolute and standing firm. Another way of saying that in modern day vernacular is simply this, having the courage of your convictions. Do you have the courage of your biblical, theological convictions? It's refusing to blink, refusing to flinch. It's having spiritual nerves of steel that are willing to take the arrows when you stand for the truth of God's word. A few years ago, I transitioned from road cycling to mountain biking primarily because in South Africa, the crime has gotten so bad, we now have bicycle jacking syndicates, and people are bike jacked. I know you've heard of carjacking, but we have bike jacking as well. And so I took up mountain biking because you can get away from it all and, and ride on the farms out around where we live on the edge of Cape Town. But what I learned when I took up mountain biking is this, it takes a bit of courage at times. I don't mind going uphill. It's the downhills that concern me. 
especially the gnarly, technical, twisty, turny downhills with rocks and other obstacles. In my 20s, I would have enjoyed it. At 60, I prefer to ride a little bit more cautiously uh, than I would have 40 years ago. So I try not to bite off more than I can chew and go above uh, the intermediate level of writing. But you see, in life, we don't always have that option, do we? We need to be strong. We need to be courageous to stand against the prevailing currents that are being exerted upon us by a Christ-denying world. Where does such strength come from? Well, it doesn't come from me, and it doesn't come from you. Ultimately, it comes from God, not we ourselves. In other words, it is a derived courage and strength that is spoken of here, a divinely derived courage and strength. And so this morning, we want to look at the three provisions of this courage and strength as seen in the example of Joshua just prior to conquest. The three provisions of the courage and the strength that are spoken of here are found in God's promises, God's presence, and God's priority. Let's look at this courage and strength as it is derived from God's promises. We see this in verses 1 through 3 and verse 6. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Cross this Jordan, you and all of this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. Then verse 6, be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Now, when you think of Joshua and you think of the strength and the courage that is mentioned here, please understand this does not happen in a vacuum, but rather it is predicated upon the promises made by God that extend all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It goes back some 600 years. And so what is it about these promises that we need to understand? Well, first of all, we need to understand the promises that Joshua is operating on are based on God's person. They're based on who he is. He begins here and he uses the covenant-keeping name for God, Lord or Yahweh, as it is in the biblical Hebrew, or Jehovah as we transliterate it into the English. This is the name for God that speaks of his covenant-keeping character and qualities for his covenant-keeping people, Israel. It speaks of a special relationship that he has with his people, a unique relationship, a loving relationship, a father-child relationship. And despite the death of Moses, 
The word on the street here in ancient Israel is, I am still the great I am of Moses. And this is the name for God that was revealed to Moses in the burning bush incident in the Midian desert back in Exodus 3, 1 through 15, when that bush spoke to Moses and Moses said to the bush, when I go back to Egypt, who shall I say has sent me? I am that I am, Yahweh. It speaks of God's eternal existence. And because it speaks of God's eternal existence, it speaks of his corresponding, enduring faithfulness to his covenant people, Israel. God will honor his word even when Israel doesn't honor him in obedience. You see, when someone makes a promise, it matters who's making the promise, doesn't it? And if the person making the promise is a systemic, natal, congenital, inveterate liar, you're probably not going to believe a single solitary word that comes out of their mouth. It's like a politician at election time. All of the grand, flowery promises and their DOA, dead on arrival. You want someone with character and integrity who will back up what he promises. And so the promises that Joshua is operating upon are based and premised in the person of God himself. And therefore those promises are as good as the person and the character that is behind them all. Secondly, these promises are based on God's possession. In verse two, we see, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross the Jordan, and all this people to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. You see, it's God's land. He owns the title deed, not the Canaanites, not the Jebusites, not the Gergesites. It's God, and it's God's to give away. And if God wants to engage in some expropriation of land without compensation, compensation that is his divine right. In fact, back in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, God, through Moses, promised the people of Israel that he would give them such a land. And in Deuteronomy 11, let me begin reading in verse 24 of Deuteronomy 11. Every place on which the sole of your foot shall tread shall be yours. Your border shall be from the wilderness of Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, as far as the western sea. There shall no man be able to stand before you. The Lord your God shall lay the dread of you and the fear of you on the land on which you set foot as he has spoken to you. It's a done deal. Escrow's going to close. And God is going to use Joshua and the people of Israel to, for, to, cl to close escrow on this land promise. 
And so it's God's possession to give to them. Further, and closely related, it's God's provision. He's providing this for them. In verse 3 of Joshua 1, he outlines the parameters, the, the borders of this territory that is now going to be Israel's. Now, granted, they never realized the full extent of the land that God had promised them here. In fact, the closest they ever came to enjoying all of the land promised here in verse 3 was under the reign of King David. Someday, God will give them the full dimensions of these borders. But they have to step out by faith. There's some human responsibility here. God isn't just going to give it to them passively. They have to exercise their faith in God and these promises. On this passage, Spurgeon said this, Joshua was not to use the promise as a a couch upon which his indolence might luxuriate, but as a girdle wherewith to gird up his loins for future activity. The point of what Spurgeon is saying in this passage is that even though there's divine sovereignty overarching all of this, that does not exclude nor does it obviate human responsibility, but rather it demands human responsibility under the umbrella of his sovereignty. And so these promises are are based on God's provision and his possession a possession as well as his person, but they're also based on the patriarchs. In verse 6, he reminds them, he said, I swore to your fathers to give them this land. This extends all the way back six centuries to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now God is going to make good on his promises. Further, these promises are based on the individual person of Joshua. He, first and foremost, had to exercise his faith, and he had to display the strength and the courage that was necessary to first cross from the east side of the Jordan to the west side, and then move on westward to Jericho. If Joshua was weak and hesitant, you can imagine the fallout of this over the whole nation because as Joshua goes, so goes the nation. As the husband goes, so goes the wife. As the parents go, so go the children. As the elders go, so goes the church. You get the idea. Joshua had a proven track record. And it extends all the way back to the book of Numbers. It extends all the way back to that moment in time when he went with those other 11 spies to spy out the promised land. And only Joshua and Caleb went back with a favorable report. And so he was willing to step out by faith and he had proved it before. Maybe he had some understanding of what we know from the New Testament, where Paul says in Ephesians 1.3 that we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. 
In 2 Peter 1.3, Peter said, we have all things pertaining to life and godliness. In Colossians 2.10, Paul reminds the Colossian believers that, that they are complete in Christ. And that word complete there means to be richly and lavishly furnished. It means to have everything you need for outfit and passage as you begin a long, arduous journey. In other words, as believers in Christ, we lack nothing. We have all of the tools that God has already given us. But like Joshua and like the children of, uh, of, of Israel, we need to exercise our faith and put those tools to good use. So, as we look at this courage and strength that is de divinely derived from God, it's based on His promises found in His Word. Secondly, the courage and strength mentioned here in Joshua 1 is based on God's presence. God's presence. Verse 5, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Again in verse 9, have not I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Though the towering figure of Moses is no longer there to lead them, Joshua was not left alone. God was ever present to lead him each step of the way and was not going to leave him neither high nor dry. God is there. Moses is enjoying his reward. But God is still present. And what we learn from this is that there's a permanence to God's presence. And we see that very clearly in the first clause of verse 5. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. In other words, God's presence is for keeps. God isn't going anywhere. He is there even when we don't sense his presence. Furthermore, there's the continuance of God's presence because he goes on in verse 5, just as he has been with Moses, now he is going to be with Joshua as well. He isn't going anyplace. It is business as usual. That's comforting when you're getting ready to do battle. To know that God is there with you each step of the way. And that God is going to match the same constancy and consistency that was seen through the life and the ministry of Moses during those 40 wilderness wandering years. There's a real emphaticness to the presence here. And if you look at the bottom of verse 5, he says, I will not fail you, nor forsake you. 
And in the biblical Hebrew, that is written in the strongest, emphatic construction that biblical Hebrew has to offer. God is never, ever going to leave them. He's never, ever going to forsake them. This is the sustained condition that is predicated upon the person, the work, and the faithfulness of this covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. Joshua might fall. He might stumble. But God never will. God will never lose his grip. His presence is enduring all the way to the end and then some. Note the location of this presence. Everywhere. Wherever they place their foot. God is with them. He's not going to leave them. This would have been astounding to them. Because in the ancient Near East antiquity, in those pagan religions with all of their various gods and goddesses, you had a god for every particular region. The god of the river, the god of the mountain, the god of the sea, the god of the underworld, the god of the harvest, the god of fertility, and so forth. They had a god or a goddess for everything, just as modern-day Hinduism does. But those gods and those goddesses were regionally bound to their allotted territories. Not so with Israel's God. There are no limits. There's no fence. There's no border wall. God extends beyond it all. He's omnipresent. And so, the result of that is, no man will be able to stand against you, God says. How does this apply to us in a new covenant economy, in a New Testament setting? Because we're not ancient Israel. We're the ecclesia of God. Think of Isaiah 9-6, the promise of the Messiah. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Fast forward to Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. A son shall be born, a son shall be given, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Now leapfrog a bit further in Matthew's gospel to Matthew 28, at the end of it all, at the end of the Great Commission, after he issues the Great Commission to those disciples, he concludes it all with the crescendo of, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. What about Hebrews 13.5 that quotes Joshua 1.5? I will never leave you or forsake you. Is it any wonder the Apostle Paul could burst forth in ejaculatory praise in Romans 8, verse 31, after he recounts the wonderful salvation that is ours in Christ? With this settled confidence, if God is for us, 
who can be against us? Remember that as the winds of persecution begin to pick up in both volume and velocity. If God is for us, who can be against us? Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Absolutely not. God's presence is an important component of understanding the derived nature of both this strength and this courage. But then thirdly, we have God's priority. God's priority. Verses seven and eight. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all that the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. We have God's person, God's presence, in God's priority. It is noteworthy here that God's instructions here are not about military might, not about military strategy or strength, all of which become important at some point in time, but what is significant here is the real keys to Joshua's success were not to be found in an arms race, but rather in the word of God. The word of God that he had available to him at that moment in time, which would have been Genesis through the book of Deuteronomy. Unless you're a dead, dry, Christ-denying German theologian who believes that, oh, these were written after the Babylonian captivity. No, Joshua had Genesis through Deuteronomy. And in the word of God, in the book of Deuteronomy again, it stated very clearly what was expected of the future monarchs that would eventually lead Israel. But there would have been application here for any of Israel's leaders leading up to that, including the judges. And in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, we have a detailed account of what God expected from Israel's leaders and from their future monarchs. What's interesting is in verse 16 of Deuteronomy 17, he says this, moreover, he, or the leader, the king, shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said, you shall never again return that way. In other words, no arms race. Verse 18 through 20 concludes then with the most important component of all of this that is required for a leader of Israel. Verse 18, now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. 
and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. That is, his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in this kingdom in the midst of Israel. The word of God was so important and so vital to the future and the nation of Israel that the king himself was to write his own copy of it, Genesis through Deuteronomy, in the presence of the overseeing Levitical priesthood. Now, I don't know why that is. Maybe it was to keep the king from writing his own version of cliff notes, but he was to do this. There was accountability. The word of God was an absolute necessity for their success as a nation. This requires obedience. We see that in, in verse 8. It's, it's not to depart from his mouth, and, and he must be careful to do according to all that is written in it. So obedience is required. We might even say that he was to be obsessive about it. There were to be no deviations, no detours, no shortcuts, no demarcations, but rather he was to stay on course not to alter the trajectory that God has outlined for them. And his occupation was meditation. He was to meditate on the word of God both day and both night. Now, when we think of meditation, oftentimes our minds will immediately begin to think of all of the new age type of meditation that's all around us, whereby one is to empty their mind of all and then they're to visualize. Now, granted, for some, that isn't a very long journey. <laughs> That's not the idea. Biblical meditation on the Word of God is not emptying your mind. Rather, it is filling your mind with the truth of God's words and ruminating on it, cogitating on it, chewing your cud on the word of God. And the interesting thing about the word meditate here is it has the verbal connotation of muttering. And the idea is that there are even those occasions when you get the biblical mutters and you're muttering audibly the word of God. I often mutter to myself. My wife will say, who are you speaking to? Just myself. If you saw me, you'd say, that he's mad. I think he needs a psych evaluation. There's something wrong with that man. But oftentimes, I'm rehearsing something. I'm rehearsing it in my mind, and as I rehearse it in my mind, I'm muttering it. It might be a sermon. It might be something I've studied. It might be some presentation that I have. And so I'm rehearsing it and I'm pacing back and forth. That's the idea. In fact, when, when you look at Psalm 1 and you look at the Psalm 1 
man or woman of God, he talks about meditating on the word of God. Let me just read verse two, Psalm one, verse two. His delight is in the law of the Lord, meaning the word of God. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He mutters. He mutters the word of God. He fills his mind and his heart with the word of God, and then it comes out and it is expressed through these audible mutterings. That's pretty much the idea. So what's the outcome of all of this? Again, Joshua 1.8, prosperity and success. And the fact that you will not be dismayed. There will be no trembling because you have the fear of God, not the fear of man, which is a snare. Because you have this divinely derived courage and strength that's from without and is inculcated within. Then you have success. Not the promise of material wealth or gain, but of spiritual success, spiritual riches that are the byproduct of focusing on this holy God. And this success is the result of obedience and faithfulness to God so that when Joshua steps out by faith, he will have great success as God blesses his efforts and this exhibition of faith. We are not to measure success as the world does. Position, power, prestige, possessions, even degrees. I once heard somebody say, degrees are like a pig's tail. They're aesthetically pleasing, but they don't necessarily improve the taste of the pork. <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm anti-academic. I have a few, I have a bit of wallpaper myself, but it proves the point. The blessings promised to us today are the byproduct of a life that is devoted to God through his word. We have the promises of God through Jesus Christ today. The promise that he will never leave us, nor will he forsake us. The promise of sin forgiven. The promise of the resurrection. The promise of the soon and coming king. The great and blessed hope. We have the presence of God as promised in the New Testament. If you're in Christ, you have been indwelt and divinely sealed with the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. And we have the priority of God's word available to us today. In so many versions, we can't even count them today. So we have all of the same tools available to us today so that we can say, as Joshua did, at the end of it all, at the end of the book of Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I...